Hey everyone, this is Nick and welcome back to the weekly Linux and open source news podcast. And this week we have a desktop focused episode with updates on System76's cosmic desktop design. We have Mint working on Wayland support and they're teasing some features for their next release. And we have Budgie landing some big updates as well on top of Elementary OS 7 being released. And we also have Plasma Mobile receiving a lot of cool new stuff and a bunch of gaming related news to cover as well. So before we dive in, let me just remind you that you can find all the links in the show notes to all the articles I use to make this podcast. And you will also find links to everything I do like my YouTube channel, my merch store or my social links. And also this audio podcast is entirely user supported. And if you like it that way without ads or sponsors, just don't hesitate to support the show on Patreon. The link is also in the show notes. So let's get started. So first we have System76. Uh, they're, they're making Pop! OS and they're making laptops and desktops uh, that ship with Pop! OS by default. And as you might know, they're currently shipping a desktop called Cosmic, which is basically just GNOME with a bunch of extensions and customizations. But they're working on their own desktop environment, also called Cosmic, and written in Rust, which is a brand new thing not based on GNOME at all. And so they've shared more information in a blog post about their progress on that. So first, they've added some more widgets to their library that supports basically all the controls that they're going to add in their own apps. So they've added support for tabs and segmented buttons in this UI library. So basically, they can have more control over how they create their settings pages, which is the thing that they seem to be focused on right now. They haven't shown any other kind of app than the settings. Uh, so I think that's what they're starting with, the basic desktop shell, which will look like what they're currently shipping using GNOME and extensions, and also the settings that will let you configure all of that. Now they're showing an interesting approach to search, for example, in their settings app, which is while you type some search query, you'll find all the relevant categories on a left side uh, bar, a sidebar, but all the categories will also be shown in a single page on the right hand panel of the settings app, which means that you don't have to click on every single category to try and find the setting that you're looking for. You can just scroll the page between the different categories and you'll see everything all at once. You don't have to pick between each category. You'll see every single setting in a single page that's relevant to your search, which I think is an interesting idea and should be pretty useful and pretty handy. Now, apparently they also did some user testing on what they already had developed and they have adjusted their design accordingly. And so they provided links to each settings page design on GitHub. So you'll find the, the link to their blog post in the show notes. And from that blog post, you'll see the links to every single settings category and the designs they've been working on. Uh, they look pretty good and they also explain why they chose to make these settings work like they did, which I think is very transparent and very cool. So for example, the power settings will show device cards for each currently plugged device that has a battery or even stuff that's connected wirelessly like a wireless controller, mouse or keyboard. You'll see all the battery statuses in a single settings page, which I think is pretty cool. Uh, the display panel will also let users choose the graphics mode, like using the integrated GPU or a dedicated GPU if you have, for example, a hybrid, uh, hybrid graphics laptop. That's interesting because usually these are more in the power settings than in the display settings. But apparently from their user testing, it seems like people are looking for these settings in the display stuff because 
while your GPU is used to display stuff. So it kind of makes sense. Now they also will have the language settings, which will let users pick the formatting of various units, like the calendar, the date format, like the temperature, the measurement system, if you're metric or if you're imperial. Uh, and, and these will be fused with the language settings, which again, makes sense. Like you're picking your language and region and your unit types. It, it seems logical. And the sound panel will also have options to let users adjust the volume of alerts. So for example, your notifications and of individual applications, which is nice because that's something that's been missing from GNOME, uh, at least in the, in the various quick settings. So it's pretty cool that they added that. Another thing that they're working on is dynamic rendering, which means that their desktop will automatically pick the best option to render the desktop graphically. So if you don't have a GPU or you don't have good drivers for your GPU, everything will be rendered in software. And if you have a GPU, it will use OpenGL or Vulkan, depending on which one is supported or has the best performance. Again, pretty cool idea. It's automated, you don't have to do anything. Good point. So Cosmic will use Wayland, they confirm that, and they implement X Wayland, uh, with support being added to their compositor, which is what supports Wayland on their, on their desktop. And they created a library for adding animations inside of applications, like for example, resizing elements or elements moving inside of apps as you interact with them. So everything should look pretty nice and modern. And honestly, it looks really good on screenshots. Like the theme is going to be divisive, I think, because it's basically the dark theme of Cosmic, but even a bit colder, I think, with that super bright teal blue on a very dark background. They only showed the dark mode much. Uh, I don't think they really showed the, the light mode all that much. But I think it looks good. And I think their rational and approach to design is an interesting one. I think it's going to be a good product. Now, what we don't know yet is what exactly they intend to ship. Is it just going to be a shell plus some settings, at least in the beginning? Or will they have replacement for GNOME applications? Because if they don't, then they're going to ship a desktop which has various settings that look exactly like they want, but they're going to have libadvita apps in the middle. So unless they do a big patching job to try and make these look like cosmic applications, it's going to feel a little bit weird. So maybe their plan is just to introduce cosmic like relatively early so people can give some feedback with the minimum viable number of applications and then start working on the various other apps that could replace GNOMES. We don't really know yet, but honestly, I'm very excited to see where they're going with this. It looks like a carefully crafted thing, modern. They're focusing on interesting features like font rendering to make sure that it looks good everywhere, which has traditionally been an issue on Linux. And they're focusing on HDR and Wayland support. Like they're building this to be modern out of the box. They are not carrying around uh, an old legacy code base, which I think is an interesting approach. Now let's talk about Linux Mint. They gave more details about their future release. Uh, it's going to be Mint 21.2. It's going to be codenamed Victoria. And apparently it's going to be the starting point of their Wayland support, as they announced that their login manager will get support for Wayland sessions. Now, for now, we don't know if it just means that their login manager will be able to start a Wayland session of a desktop environment that supports Wayland, or if it's the first starting point for their support of Wayland on Cinnamon, their own desktop environment. They haven't clarified that yet, but it probably is both, basically. Letting people start Wayland sessions for desktops that do support Wayland 
and also letting them have that option for when they actually implement Wayland support in Cinnamon. And seeing that XFC 4.20 is being worked on and will bring Wayland support, and since XFC is one of the additions that Mint ships, it could also be related to that, that they're, they're preparing the work for when 4.20 releases for XFC, and so they can support a Wayland session for people who want it. So Linux Mint Victoria will be released in June 2023, and the first feature that they're teasing are not major ones. They're not the total sum of what they have planned, of course. They're just a few things that they picked or that they know that they will ship already. But these include a choice of keyboard layouts in the login manager, which is nice because sometimes you set up your system in English with an English keyboard and then you realize that no, your keyboard is actually a French layout and you didn't set it up correctly, but then you type your password all wrong and you never manage to log in. So having the choice of keyboard layouts in the login manager is good. They'll also add a tap to click support on touchpads in the login manager, which is also cool. And they will let you configure the layout of the on-screen keyboard, plus improving keyboard navigation in the login manager as well. So for example, you will now be able to use the arrow keys to go back on your password to edit certain characters, which is pretty useful if you know where you made a mistake when typing instead of just retyping everything. Now they also teased a few improvements to Pix, uh, the image viewer, which will be rebased on the latest Gthumb image viewer. But this also means that their image viewer will get a header bar which is at odds with the rest of Mint's design. Uh, most of Mint's apps don't use a header bar. They use a normal title bar and menu bar and toolbar combo. But now at least one of their major apps that they ship by default will use a header bar. They, in the blog post, they say that it's okay, it's still a good design, it's still intuitive, etc. But I'm pretty sure that some people using Mint will not like this because I think a lot of people using Mint just do not like Gnome's design decisions, including the header bar, but we'll see how well that goes with the community. This new release of Pix will also bring better performance, support for a lot more file formats, improved zoom controls, support for color profiles, a color picker, and customizable keyboard shortcuts. So it should be a very big update to an application that's allegedly a bit minor for most people, but still, it's good to have all those features. And the document viewer will apparently also get support for Adobe Illustrator documents, which again, pretty nice. I don't know how many Linux users have Adobe Illustrator documents, but if you need to open one in a pinch, then it's gonna be doable. So yeah, basically just like every single Mint release, it can be either a very small incremental improvement or a huge departure from the norm. Like for example, the previous one was just a small version number bump but it changed the whole look and feel of the distribution and added some pretty big features like Flatpak support integrated everywhere in the distro. So I don't know if Victoria will be the same kind of big evolution or just a small point release as its name should imply, but yeah, you never know with Mint what to expect when they update their distro. And now let's talk Elementary OS 7. So if you haven't already watched uh, this, I made a video about it. It's on my YouTube channel. Yes, I do have a YouTube channel. Most of you probably know that, but some of you might not. So there's a YouTube channel where I talk about Linux, three videos per week, including the Linux news videos, uh, which this podcast expands upon. And so you'll find a link uh, to that in the show notes. But yeah, I made a video about it. I covered visually all the changes, but let's talk about it here a little bit as well. 
So it released about a year and a half after Elementary OS 6. And it's just evolutionary. It doesn't change much. If you liked Elementary OS 6 or 6.1, you'll still like 7. And if you didn't like 6 or 6.1, 7 will do nothing for you. So it's based on Ubuntu 22.04 at least, so it's got a more modern base than the 18.04, no 20, no it was 20.04 uh, that, that the previous release used. It has the latest hardware support from Ubuntu and it still shows a huge amount of polish and attention to, de to detail. That's something that Elementary OS always did really, really well. They just make sure that everything looks on point, feels right, is well designed and well thought out. Not everyone agrees with their decisions uh, on, on what they include and what they don't, but you can't fault them for half-baking something. Now, the installer has been improved a little bit to be less invasive in how it informs you of various statuses, like, for example, the battery status, if your laptop isn't plugged in while you install, instead of showing you a full screen page of, hey, you should plug in, you'll just get a small notification, stuff like that. Uh, there is still no upgrade path from 6.1 to 7. You will still have to reinstall the whole OS. This still sucks, in my opinion. Even though they don't release distros every six months, reinstalling every year or year and a half is just not a great experience. I really wish they added uh, an upgrade path here. But they still improve the onboarding app, which now lets you pick an auto, light, or dark mode based on the time of day. Uh, it will let you enable auto updates as well. But they mainly, mainly worked on the App Center, which is, which was at least the pride and joy of Elementary OS. It was one of the best designed app stores on Linux. It still is, and it has better app pages now. With bigger screenshots and captions above these screenshots, you get some nice accent colors around those, so it's legible, it's, it really looks good. It's adaptive, so you can tile it on the side of, uh, of your display without it looking half-broken or without having horizontal scrolling. It now has a dedicated updates button in the header bar, and it will now also clearly show if an application is maintained or not. You'll get a small tag letting you know if the app is outdated, and you'll get a bunch of release notes for each app. Uh, I think it's up to five versions, so you know when the app has last been updated and the frequency of updates to the application. So these are all good changes. Now, the applications also have received a few things here and there. The file manager now has an option to open folders with single click or double click, which was something that was missing previously. They updated GNOME Web to its latest version. That's their default browser. They ship GNOME Web by default, not Firefox or Chromium. And so GNOME Web is now updated to GTK4 and has a much, much better WebKit engine, which should be much faster. And in my experience, GNOME Web always failed to open YouTube videos. But not this one. Uh, the, the latest version of GNOME Web seems to work really well now. They also completely revamped the music player. They rewrote it entirely. So it's now just a music player. It's not a collection manager. You will not be able to edit tags to sort things by albums or artists or genres. You just drop some songs in it and it's going to play a cue and that's it. They also added color profiles to their terminal app, but it lost its half transparency, which is too bad. I liked it. And they improved the code editor, which got better search tools. The mail client got some UI updates and a lot of fixes. It was super crashy and buggy before, and now it's not, which is good. And that basically covers it all. It's, it's an incremental change. I think it's a solid foundation that they have to build upon, 
And since it's a semi-rolling release or strolling release, as some people call them in the comments of that video, uh, they will get updates to all the applications and the desktop and the app center and even the base with hardware enablement stacks from Ubuntu. It's not fixated as it is. And it's a solid foundation to build upon to migrate all the apps to GTK4 and stuff like that. But the improvements it brings from 6.1 are not enormous. It's basically the equivalent of one GNOME version, except it took them a year and a half to make when GNOME usually ships these in six weeks, in six months. Of course, GNOME has more developers, a bigger team, and Elementary OS tackles applications, the desktop, and the distro, which might be too much, but yeah, it's still a good desktop. It's still a good distro. If you liked Elementary OS before, you will still like Elementary OS 7. But if you didn't, it's not going to do anything new for you. Let's move on to another desktop environment, Budgie this time. So Budgie, if you don't know, is a desktop environment mostly based on GNOME, uh, but they introduce a bunch of things like their own panel, uh, a side panel with widgets and notifications, their own control center. And basically it's a GNOME++ with more options. It's still based on modern GNOME technologies, but it brings more options all around so you can configure it more like you want. So they just updated it uh, to version 10.7 and it's a pretty big one. Uh, first, you get a new application indexer, which fixes one of the main problems with budgie and apps. The menu and their run dialogue, which can be compared to, for example, uh, the same thing on KD, which is KRunner, I think. Uh, so their, their menu and their run dialogue did not have the same applications list because they did not index all the .desktop files in the same way or from the same places. Uh, and so that's now fixed. Uh, they now have their own indexer, which indexes things correctly. And so all the sources where you can launch applications will have the same applications list and the same information. Uh, that's good. That run dialog also will give you more consistent search results, uh, which means that if you type the same name multiple times, you'll get the same order of results, which is better for muscle memory. And it will now display the app's description under the application name, so it's more legible, basically. And it also adapts correctly to the resolution of your monitor and your scaling, which is always nice. So Budgie also gets a new screenshot tool, which replaces GNOMES. It looks absolutely identical to the previous one, so I don't think anyone will really notice, but it, it goes along the lines of Budgie trying to separate itself from GNOME. Uh, they talked about this in the past. They want to rebuild their desktop and their applications uh, using EFL, which is the Enlightenment uh, Foundation libraries, which are used to create the Enlightenment desktop. And so I think that slowly they're going to replace GNOME applications and tools with their own and, and let's say escape the, the vision that GNOME has, which probably limits them in their own vision because, well, they want to expand on GNOME and GNOME isn't really that expandable apart from their extension mechanism. Now, the budget menu will also check for the availability of a dedicated GPU on your computer, which means that you now can launch an application specifically using the dedicated GPU if you want on hybrid devices, which should make using Budgie on these kind of laptops, for example, way nicer. You'll also be able to open various folders straight from the menu. You'll get basically your favorites, like the downloads, documents, desktop, pictures, music, whatever, uh, directly from the menu. And they also added buttons to open the desktop settings or the Budgie control center 
and the power dialog that lets you lock or log out, suspend, reboot, shut down your computer, etc. So the menu is now more functional. You have more options in there to interact with your system. They also added a fade in, fade out effect uh, for notifications. And these will not take your input focus anymore, which is nice. Because previously, if you were typing something in a document in Budgie and a notification appeared, you were typing in the wind, basically, because the notification had taken focus from the application. And so everything you typed was just disappeared. Now it won't be the case, which is really much, much better. And there are some other improvements in their Raven panel, which is their side panel that appears from the right by default. Uh, it, it just handles a bunch of widgets and notifications. And now they added an API. So third-party developers can now build widgets that can go into that panel. Uh, it's not just budgie developers that can make them. Third-party developers can now add to the panel. And I think it's a good idea. And you can also now position the widgets as you want in the menu when it was not the case before. And you can remove widgets that you didn't need. And on top of that, they added a new usage monitor widget, which will let you monitor how well your computer is running. So it's a very solid update, very big. And uh, if you watched my desktop tier list video, I basically said that Budgie was okay, but I didn't really understand how where they were going, basically, because they talked about moving to EFL, and then there were basically no updates to the desktop, or very, very small ones. So I thought it was in some kind of limbo. Uh, I thought it was not abandoned, but on pause while they were figuring out their plan to move to other libraries. But it seems that, that that's not the case. They're still working on it, and they're adding some pretty cool stuff. So yeah, if you like Budgie, I think I made a sort of a mistake in that uh, desktop tier list video. I think it's still a very good option because, well, my main gripe with it was that it wasn't updated anymore, but it still is. So that's good. Now, not a desktop, but still kind of a desktop. Let's talk about Plasma Mobile. Uh, they shared a progress report, especially on their applications. The shell didn't receive many changes. The shell being the thing that lets you launch applications on your smartphone running KDE Plasma Mobile. Uh, they, they shared more progress on the apps. So first they redesigned AudioTube, which is a YouTube client, and it now lets you play videos in the background while you're navigating onto other pages in the application, which is a very good change. It's not picture-in-picture -picture mode for your whole system, but it's still more practical. You can still listen to audio from a video while you look for another one. Uh, they also changed a few things on Alligator, which is the RSS feed reader. It now works better on widescreen configurations. And you might be asking, what does widescreen have to do with mobile applications and Plasma Mobile? And that's because most, if not all, Plasma Mobile apps also work on desktops. They're all adaptive. They're built with the Kirigami framework, mostly, which is a framework based on KDE libraries that lets developers make applications that work just as well on desktop and on mobile. And most, if not all, Plasma Mobile apps also work on desktops. And some of them really work well on desktops and they are perfect replacements for desktop applications. So now the RSS reader is able to work better on your desktop as well. They also worked on Spacebar, which is their SMS or MMS app. Uh, it now has a button to auto-scroll to the bottom of the page and it also will let you know how many new messages you have. It can also now display how many members there are in a group conversation and the app is now way faster to open. 
But that's not all, they also improved how scrolling works, it should be way smoother, and they won't reload the chat list every time you move around the application, which will give a more stable and interesting experience, I think, for most users. And they also fixed a lot of backend stuff, which is always nice. Now, the developers, including uh, Nicolo Venerandi, which you might know from his uh, YouTube channel as well, uh, they all started work on an ebook reader called Ariana. Uh, this is a very bare-bones app right now. It supports EPUB, it has basic library management and search capabilities, and that's about it. But it looks pretty good. It has a nice-looking shelf uh, where your books lay on. It's It looks good. Sort of a, an older iBooks look. I like it. And they also updated a bunch of other apps, like Calc, which is their calculator, uh, Coco, their image viewer, NeoChat, which is their matrix client, OKWeather, okay which is, as its name implies, the weather app. And the most important one for you, because you're listening to this podcast, will be Casts, with a K, because it's a KDE app. And that application got redesigned, header bar controls. Uh, it got a sidebar on the desktop that has been completely reworked, so it's now more similar to the one used on mobile. And they rewrote the audio backend from scratch. And that backend is now able to use libvlc, gstreamer, or Cute Multimedia, so it should run really well on any system without pulling too many dependencies. If you run it, for example, on GNOME Mobile, it will use GStreamer and you won't need to install libvlc or Cute Multimedia. If you run it on Plasma Mobile, then it's going to use Cute Multimedia and you won't need to pull uh, dependencies from other desktops. And they also added support for chapter images uh, in podcasts and the timestamps in the episode's description are now clickable. So if you were looking for a good desktop app to play podcast on Linux, Casts might be a good one. And you can always add the RSS feed to this show. Uh, it's available on the podcast website at podcast.thelinuxexp.com. If you're on mobile, it's on the little hamburger menu underneath the header. Uh, you'll find an RSS icon there. So yeah, basically they're making uh, strides on uh, on Plasma Mobile. And I think it's really time that I revisited uh, my, my Linux smartphone experiment that I did, I think it was a year and a half or two years ago. I looked at Ubuntu Touch, I looked at Fosh at the time, and I looked at Plasma Mobile, all on the Pine phone. My conclusion at the time was they're not ready and the performance is terrible. That second point was probably due to the Pine phone's really weak hardware, but maybe it's time I just bought a more recent phone, like a OnePlus 6T or something that is compatible with Linux distros, and try some stuff out, because it seems like they're progressing really nicely. And if we can install WayDroid easily enough to run Android apps on top of a fully Linux uh, system, well, I think I would be very happy with that. Okay, now let's talk about Google and open source. So last week, I talked a little bit about how they fired some people, especially in the open source parts of the company. Uh, but it looks like they don't really know where they want to go with open source. Because now they're expanding their bug bounty program for open source security. But <laughs> if you think about it, maybe it's kind of logical. Like they fired the people that worked on open source security at Google, and so they are now willing to pay people outside of Google to work on the same thing. Maybe that makes sense. But basically, they're expanding that bug bounty program uh, called OSS Fuzz, with rewards up to $30,000 for researchers that can find security flaws in their open source projects. Well, in any open source project. And that's $10,000 more than the previous ceiling that they had on that bug bounty program. So, of course, the goal is to push open source projects to adopt fuzz testing, 
which is basically their stuff to automate software testing with the purpose of making a program crash or to create a memory leak that might indicate that there's an exploitable flaw somewhere, a vulnerability somewhere in the program. And this first program has worked really well in the past. Uh, they found a nasty flaw in a library called TinyGLTF, which is a C++ library, which is used in Chromium, the Linux kernel, Android, or Windows. But in general, since it was introduced in 2016, it helped discover and fix 8,800 vulnerabilities and 28,000 bugs across 850 open source projects. And Google is expanding language support for OSS Fuzz. Uh, they added JavaScript to the list, and that list already included C, C++, Go, Rust, Python, and Java. So I know bug bounty programs have been criticized in the past, uh, especially in open source software, uh, because when you're an open source project and you open a bug bounty program, some users take that as a signal that they can request anything and that you will work on it if you pay them. So some people were expecting to, to, add, to add a feature, a specific feature. They were willing to pay for that feature to be implemented, but the project might say, that's not a feature we're interested in, or we don't want to work on it, or no one wants to work on it even for that kind of money. And so there's a disconnect between what users expect, I pay you to fix stuff, or I pay you to work on certain features, and what the project expects, which is, yeah, sure, you can, you can tell us that you would like us to work on something and offer some money to do it, but that doesn't mean we will do it. And so there's, there has been some, some problems in the past about this. But I think that when it's a company that introduces that kind of bug bounty program and when they're really centered on vulnerabilities and security issues and not features or, or smaller bug fixes, then I think it's a good thing. I think it's going to let people like train their skills, uh, train their hacking skills to try and make sure that they can know where a program works and how it works and, and where the problems are. And also, well, it means that open source projects might get more secure thanks to it. So yeah, I think it's a pretty good thing. And now let's talk about AI some more. I know some of you are really tired of hearing about AI, but there's a new development in the lawsuit against GitHub, Microsoft, and OpenAI. They had been sued over Copilot uh, because, well, allegedly Copilot abuses open source code without respecting attribution or licenses which is equivalent to software piracy. So that first lawsuit accused Microsoft of software piracy on what they called an unprecedented scale. And that first class action lawsuit has been followed by a second one on behalf of two anonymous software developers, and it's based on the similar grounds as the first class action. So now they have two lawsuits to contend with. And Microsoft isn't really super happy about that, so they're actually pushing for that second lawsuit to be dismissed entirely. Because basically, if they lose in any single one of these lawsuits, it might mean that at least in the US, the whole AI landscape might be completely redefined. Uh, it would mean that, yes, attribution has to be respected, licenses have to be respected, even though your AI just learned from that code and doesn't spit it out or copy-paste it, you still have to respect the source material. So obviously they don't want to lose any of these cases because it would mean that Copilot is basically not a workable product anymore. And so they're asking uh, the courts to dismiss this lawsuit uh, completely. They're saying that there is no injury committed, that no one's been hurt by it, 
they say that the claim isn't viable because it relies on hypothetical events. And you can understand why they want that, because well, they invested so much in OpenAI that, yeah, it would basically knacker their investment completely if, uh, if they lost. They, Microsoft also says that Copilot doesn't prevent anyone else from using the open source code and that the two anonymous developers are the ones harming open source principles by asking for compensation for the misuse of software that they voluntarily shared as open source, which kind of shows a either willing or unwilling completely misunderstanding of open source on the part of Microsoft. Because yes, making your code open source is an invitation to look at it, to use it, to fork it, to modify it. But there are rules. There's a license. Talking about attribution, talking about some amount of copyright depending on the license. Not all open source licenses are completely permissive. And Microsoft just saying, hey, you know what, they put that code in open source mode, so they shouldn't complain if someone uses it. They're the ones harming open source. No, they just want their licenses to be respected. It's weird, but hey, I mean, it's a defense crafted by lawyers. They're not going to say, yeah, you know what, you're right. They're obviously going to fight this tooth and nail. So we won't know how well this will go or in which direction this will go uh, until the end of May, because the courts will not rule on that until then. So there's still a lot of time for the plaintiffs or the defenders to still trade blows and either get their lawsuit moving or to try and have it dismissed. But it's going to be a very interesting thing to follow if you're interested in AI at all. Because, yeah, these kind of lawsuits will define the landscape for AI, at least in the US. But when a decision is reached in the US, other countries might start looking at the same thing. Uh, because it's going to make some noise. And that's made more apparent by this next topic, which is still on AI. It looks like the United States and the European Union have reached an agreement about AI in order to make sure that AI development and deployment in what they call important areas can be faster and more collaborative between the US and the EU. So this might also mean that decisions reached in the US or the EU might affect the other country as well. Now, specifically, this agreement covers the use of AI for improving agriculture, healthcare, emergency responses, or the electric grid or climate forecasting, all domains where a good and well-trained AI model could be of service compared to personal biases, even though, of course, an AI model has personal biases from their developers or the data set it uses. But still, both the EU and the US will build joint models for these machine learning tools, all the while keeping the data where it's located, which is an important part. No data that's going to be used from the EU will move to the US and no data from the US will move to the EU. They will just contribute to the same model, but that doesn't mean that all the data will be shared with everybody, which is, I think, a good thing. And they also plan to offer other countries to join the agreement so everyone can benefit from these advances. And if there is one domain where it's a good thing that countries are collaborating together, I think it's AI, because if each country builds its own AI models to handle certain things like agriculture or healthcare, then it means that their dataset is going to be limited. But if everyone pulls from everywhere in the world, then you might have a model that's actually coherent and reflects less biases, probably, or at least reflects more situations that people actually encounter. So I think it's pretty good. 
Okay, and now we're gonna finish this with the Linux gaming news. So first we have a nice experience of how Linux gaming moves really, really fast. Uh, if you followed, uh, the EA, no, not the EA, EA, Electronic Arts, released a remake of Dead Space. Uh, it's not a remaster, it's a complete remake of the game. It looks like a very fun game. I never managed to finish the first one because I was too scared to pick it back up, but it looks great. The problem is it released with very poor performance, especially on the Steam Deck and on Linux. It had tons of stutters, tons of crashes and frame drops, and basically it was unplayable for most people. But just a few days after the release, Valve worked and made the game run well, even though the developers didn't. They just released a hotfix in Proton, and they put in place a shader cache that will reduce all the stutters, and they fixed a game crash that happened when opening the in-game map, and they fixed a bunch of performance issues as well. So now the game is playable on the Steam Deck without the developer even having to lift a finger which is still an insane advantage of Linux gaming. Even when a developer decides that, yeah, you know what, I don't care about Linux, or my game just performs very poorly on every platform, including Windows, well, we at least can have a solution that other OSs can't, which is really cool. Now, we also have uh, the work on eliminating stutters uh, on, on Proton games. I talked about this last week as well, but there's now more work being done on that especially on the AMD GPU driver. Developers are focusing on certain specific Vulkan extensions, which should bring up to 50,000% improvements in fast-linking pipelines, which is basically how the GPU compiles shaders. It runs pipelines to compile shaders. NVIDIA drivers already do that pretty well and already have the necessary code to support the work being done in Proton to handle these shaders, but the MD drivers were lagging a bit behind, and now it looks like with Mesa 23.1, we can expect those performance gains as well when loading shaders in games on the deck or on any system using an AMD GPU. So Linux gaming will get even better, because if you've played some games uh, on Linux, you might have noticed that when you load a new area, you tend to have some pretty noticeable stutters and frame drops. Uh, I experienced this most in games like Warframe or games that you where you really often change levels and environments. And uh, yeah, loading a new level was basically unplayable. And with this work, that won't happen anymore, or at least it will be lessened significantly, which is really good. Now we also have an update to the Heroic Games Launcher, which lets you run Epic Games and GOG games on Linux. It got a new update, version 2.6, uh, with a brand new default theme, which looks pretty good. Uh, some kind of cold, icy, I think they call it Midnight Mirage or something. But it's, yeah, it's basically icy blue. It kind of looks like what PopOS is doing on Cosmic, if I'm honest. Uh, there's now a new modal dialog for the game settings, instead of opening a new page. So it's going to be easier to navigate the application. You won't be going back and forth between pages all the time. And Heroic will now suggest a new version of Wine to install when the selected one isn't available, which is useful because sometimes you set up a game with a certain version of Proton or Wine, and then Steam deletes that old version because it's not needed anymore, and then Heroic doesn't have uh, a version, so the game doesn't run because it was piggybacking of the Proton version of Steam. That, that happened to me a few times. And so now if you can suggest a specific new other version, uh, it's going to fix that issue, which is good. And they also added a new setting to auto-update games or to skip updates entirely for specific titles if 
a specific update would break something for you, which is very good. If you have never used Heroic Games Launcher and you do have games on Epic Games, give it a shot. It's really, really good. Uh, for Epic Games, it tends to work much better than trying Lutris and installing the Windows Epic Games client, uh, where you can only set one set of parameters for all your games. Uh, with Heroic, you have the same configuration options as what you get on Steam for each game. You can define a specific Proton version, some specific launch arguments, which is much better for compatibility. It's a really fantastic tool. And it now has a download manager as well. It's super, super featureful. It, it really, really deserves a look if you have Epic Games or even if you use God. And for people that prefer using Steam or SteamOS, there's also a very big update that fixes audio crackling on Linux when using remote play. Uh, but they also made the new big picture mode, the one that's used in SteamOS, the default for everyone on every OS on every system, which is a problem because that new big picture mode, which is basically the game UI of the Steam Deck, but on a bigger screen, it just doesn't work well on NVIDIA GPUs. The performance is horrible. And that's probably because they didn't enable hardware acceleration uh, on NVIDIA GPUs for web views because that new game UI is basically just a web app. And they seem to have difficulties either because of NVIDIA or because of, of Valve developers. Maybe they're just not focusing on NVIDIA right now because their main product using that is the Steam Deck and it runs on AMD drivers. But for now, that new big picture mode on NVIDIA is basically not usable. Of course, the old big picture mode is still available with a command line, which is good, but it's going to be removed in the future. So let's hope they can manage to fix performance issues with NVIDIA before they remove it, because if not, it means that my Steam console that I just built uh, using a laptop uh, with an RTX 3060 is basically useless. That, that would suck. Now, on top of that, they also fixed a lot of stuff in Steam input. So if you use a controller for your PC or your deck or a gaming console that you built using Steam, well, it's going to work way better, which is nice. And finally, last thing is Ubisoft. They broke their games on Linux. Probably not on purpose. They probably never test on Linux. But yeah, they updated their Ubisoft Connect launcher and every single game using it crashed at startup without being able to run. But again, Valve managed to fix everything themselves in less than 24 hours. They patched Proton Experimental in their Bleeding Edge release to fix the issue. And less than a few hours later, that release was deployed to everyone in the Proton Experimental version. It's still not available in the stable version, which means that if you don't use the Proton Experimental version, most of your Ubisoft games will still not run, but it's a very easy fix that you can find online. You just switch the version to Proton Experimental. I think it's installed by default for everyone. Uh, I think it's even made the default for specific games. So yeah, <laughs> once again, Valve just managed to fix an issue immediately. Granted, it's an issue that Windows would never have had because, of course, the Ubisoft Connect launcher would have opened correctly. But still, we sort of have like a, 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 a Gaben-shaped guardian angel floating above our shoulder and looking at, oh no, it's broken, let me just fix this. And boom, it's insane. I really love it. And so this concludes this podcast. Uh, I hope you enjoyed listening to it. As always, all the links to the various articles are in the description below. All the links to my socials, my Patreon, if you want to support the show, they're also in the show notes. You'll get all the time codes as well, everything. 
And if you want to give me your feedback, move on to the podcast website, podcast.thelinuxexp.com, where you can type uh, any comment under the podcast specifically to let me know what you think or if you want to start a discussion on a specific topic. So thank you for listening and I guess you will hear me in the next one. Bye.